Hello, and welcome to uh, the Transition in Carbon, uh, What's Coming in 2022 podcast. I'm Trevor Scorsese, Head of Global Gas and Emissions at Energy Aspects, and I'm joined today by uh, Peter Rosenthal, our Head of North American Gas, Power and Emissions, and our Head of Transition, Robert Campbell. Um, what we're going to talk about today really is just what's in store for the markets uh, for 2022, particularly focused around the environmental components and the big energy transition, which is really just kind of starting to get underway. Now, I'll kick it off and really, I guess, one of the, the, the launch pads into what's going to happen to 2022 is, of course, what happened at the end of 2021, and that was COP26 in Glasgow. And COP really delivered probably two things which were, uh, which were important for the market. I mean, probably a few more than that. But the two main ones was the first thing was the requirement on all countries to revise their nationally determined contributions that basically um, what happened was that you know uh, all of the uh, pledges under COP were added up and it was found that there wasn't enough being done uh, to be consistent with the 1.5 degree Celsius uh, target that exists under the Paris Agreement. Uh, so basically uh, it was agreed that everyone would go away think about it and come back with targets. Now um, that's obviously important because it will kind of focus it will continue to put pressure on states to focus on what they're doing in the more short to medium term. That was the real focus for this. So it will be about, you know, what's going to happen out to 2025. What are people agreeing to do and why are people agreeing to do it to 2030? Uh, and that will have implications for, for all of the markets and how we trade, because obviously it will keep pressure on policymakers to drive the transition forward. The second thing that was quite important was more specific to carbon markets and that was the so-called, uh, well, the agreement of the so-called Article 6 uh, uh, rules, which were the rules on offsetting, how to use rules uh, or how to use offsets uh, as part of the Paris Agreement as a compliance mechanism for, for states. Now, that's more important probably for the offset market, and, and it, it paves the way for uh, a much more standardized offset market. It paves the way for offsets to be used more widely as an instrument of government policy for meeting the Paris Agreement targets. And that does uh, allow, I, I would say, a much greater uh, uh, a much greater window and opportunity for private money to go into the offset market that isn't just focused on the voluntary ESG aspects of that market. So both of those are kind of important, certainly for the market going forward. Now, in terms of the traded, the traded carbon markets, uh, certainly, you know, the EU ETS has been and remains uh, the biggest of and most liquid of all of those carbon markets. And it's ending 2021 with an absolute bang. And so, you know, it kind of at the end of COP, prices were about 60. Uh, now prices are above 80 and, and we're heading uh, towards 100 towards the end of uh, towards the end of December. And a lot of that, I would say, was more speculatively, speculatively driven. It wasn't really a case that what we saw um, was, was fundamental, and it probably didn't come from COP26, because the offsets, uh, to the extent that the European policymakers might use them, would actually be probably a little bit bearish, but we don't think European policymakers are going to use them in any material volume. Um, 
or and we don't think that European policymakers are going to revise the targets that they just agreed in 2021 as part of the Fit for 55 uh, package of, uh, of policy that is really you know, the, the showpiece for how Europe is going to uh, start the energy transition and what it's going to do out to 2030. So neither of those are really bullish. So what do we expect to happen for the ETS market? Well, we think there's been a little bit of overshooting uh, of prices at the end of this year. So we do expect a little bit of a retrenchment. It's probably not going to be that big. Carbon prices are still going to stay historically high, certainly going to stay above 60 euros a ton, and that will make them the most expensive carbon uh, uh, probably uh, in the the world of, of cap and trade. So it's still going to be very important. The other thing we think will happen uh, and will be important for the ETS market is, of course, the Fit for 55 policies, which are going to introduce a much steeper cap, uh, much greater reductions in available supply in the EU ETS market. Those, po those policy proposals will uh, continue to go through the legislative, uh, the legislative uh, structure of the, e the EU, and that will take a while. Uh, and certainly it will take all of 2022 and probably run into 2023. But there will be lots of headlines coming out from Fit for 55, and a lot of them will probably be relatively bullish for that market. So we expect another, you know, another year of high prices. It's, there's not going to be a massive, massive sell-off in that market, I think, uh, for for carbon prices are going to stay, you know, in that 60, probably 60 to 90 area, very big, wide range. We saw immense amounts of volatility last year. We think that volatility is probably going to continue this year. And that's probably, you know, the key issue probably coming from this is expect high carbon prices in Europe. And that is going to be the main thing. Now, having looked at the European markets, I think, you know, it, the obvious the other big place where you're going to see a lot of action is going to be in the North American markets. And so I now pass it over uh, to Peter Rosenthal uh, to take us through his outlook uh, for North America and uh, the, the key traded markets. Thank you, Trevor. Yes, uh, North America finally uh, saw some interest and some volatility into the carbon markets for the first time in in a long while, uh, driven by kind of a the tailwind of, of European dynamics, as well as actual tightening of, of uh, power and gas markets and fuel markets in North America that led to an increased call on coal and therefore higher uh, emissions, at least in the parts of, of the organized carbon markets um, where that still matters. Looking into 2022, there are a lot of question marks around both California uh, and the Northeast Reggie market, uh, starting with the uh, Northeast market. Uh, the states that are expected to join, uh, Pennsylvania, potentially uh, North Carolina over the next couple of years, Pennsylvania has been moving down the road of uh, joining Reggie over the last um, two and a half years, but has run into a bit of a bandsaw with a Republican-led legislature in that state that is likely to, continues to put up a fight to, to try to prevent uh, Pennsylvania from joining and becoming the 12th state and the largest state in terms of emissions because it would be really the only state left in Reggie with significant uh, coal footprint. Uh, we are around 50-50 on whether that actually, whether Pennsylvania is able to actually join uh, Reggie next year. It's already been clearly delayed from the start of 2022 into the uh, middle of the year and that has a read on impact to uh, power prices in, in the ma major market of PJM um, 
in in power and because of the impact on 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 coal dispatch costs. Reggie prices have already moved above their um, cost containment reserve for the first time in four or five years, and that's ahead of um, an ongoing program review that will lead to likely tightening further of Reggie balances. Uh, and that's been one of the drivers to escalating prices as uh, traders and investors look to see uh, what happened the last time the program was reviewed and the caps were tightened and prices shot up dramatically. So we've seen the same dynamic um, this year. And that's despite uh, the most recent state to join, Virginia now looks with a Republican governor to try to actually exit the program after only one year. It will be difficult for the new uh, Republican Governor Youngkin uh, to do so, given that it's embedded in both legislation and regulation in that state. Uh, but he will try. He's got former Trump uh, environmental officials working on his transition team. And clearly um, there and based on comments he's made as recently as this week uh, that he will try to pull out and therefore lead to a um, a uh, much smaller footprint potentially if both Virginia uh, and Pennsylvania aren't part of that program. And in California, prices have also shot up well past um, their floor, which have been driven by uh, first initial gains this year were driven by increasing inflation, which is embedded in the program in, in California, uh, and then a drought that led to much higher uh, carbon or thermal output um, in that state. And now uh, they're also going to look at the um, ability to meet their long-term carbon goals, which could also lead to uh, a restriction um, in that cap um, long-term. All of these states, of course, the, on the backdrop of potential for some kind of clean energy or carbon reductions at the federal level. We still do not expect, and it's clear that there will be no federal carbon price anytime soon, and efforts to try to decarbonize the electricity sector continue to meet uh, resistance uh, in Congress with potentially uh, extension of renewable credits. And if the Build Back Better bill is passed, uh, which we're, uh, not certainly will not happen in 2021 and is still doubtful for next year, given the opposition from uh, the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, uh, that will leave, if that happens, um, one of the targets is extending renewable credits, and the other is to um, continue to uh, decarbonize other sectors through credits for nuclear, uh, potentially hydrogen, and other modes of uh, decarbonizing the energy sector overall. And with that, I will turn it over to Rob Campbell, who can look at how this transition uh, could unfold over the next couple of years. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the liquid sector is is where a lot of the rubber is meeting the road right now, but it's meeting the road in the sense that nobody actually knows how we're going to decarbonize. Um, you know, there's the, they've figured out some ways to reduce power costs on renewables very sharply, um, but to some extent, the, uh, the oil companies haven't actually figured out how to make money on this. And uh, what we are seeing is a developing dynamic where there's a lot of disinvestment coming in traditional hydrocarbon energy sources. Uh, as companies seek to, you know, uh, align themselves with their with their ESG-minded shareholders, and at the same time, there doesn't seem to be the same level of demand reduction uh, for those traditional fuels in uh, in a lot of oil and gas markets, and and that you know sets us up for uh, you know pretty pretty challenging medium-term outlook on energy prices. Um, you know, right now the technologies that are being deployed, such as biofuels, uh, you know, and and essentially electrification are still uh, either in their infancy or in terms of biofuels, you know, already kind of reaching the limits of what we can do with conventional technologies. 
In the U.S., we're already using over 40% of the country's uh, soybean oil to make uh, renewable and biodiesel. So, you know, the, the, the scope for raising production of, the, of renewable diesel, for instance, is pretty limited without having a, a decisive impact on, uh, on food prices. Uh, you know, and if we were to turn all of the U.S.'s uh, soybean oil into diesel, we'd only get about 420,000 barrels a day of, of fuel in total. So, you know, the diminishing returns are very much there. But certainly a lot of the downstream oil companies have at least hit on, uh, you know, renewable diesel and, and, and other such products such as sustainable aviation fuel as a way of transitioning at least some of their refining assets to, you know, to, to other longer term purposes. The challenge really is going to be getting feedstock at a profitable price that right now needs to be supported by very high credit prices. And, you know, to the extent that those credit prices uh, remain high, it does suggest that it'll be passed on to consumers in the end. Of course, in the, you know, we need to bear in mind that like the whole point of these credit programs is they should be expensive when there's not enough of this uh, lower carbon material, because that's how you stimulate the investment. Um, but, you know, the challenges, I think a lot in many cases, and this kind of goes back to what Peter was saying is, is I don't think politicians have really done a very good job, certainly in the North America, but I, I would argue even in Europe as the, you know, gas prices are soaring with educating the voters that, you know what, decarbonization is not going to be cheap or easy and that it's going to require uh, a bit of sacrifice on the part of ordinary consumers. Thank you, Rob. Um, uh, yeah, on that, I mean, I think there's, you know, some really interesting stuff to come out of that. And certainly, you know, when you look at the North America or the European gas markets, European gas prices have been exceptionally high this year. And of course, that has met a little bit of, uh, I would say, you know, opposition or not opposition, but certainly response from politicians to look and somehow, you know, at least protect the most poor and the most exposed uh, to, to high energy prices. And that becomes a really big political issue that has to be solved. And even though, you know, the, the gas price uh, issue in North America or in, in Europe or the gas price crisis, uh, which is kind of, you know, developed over the second half of this year, uh, isn't really be, being, you know, linked into transition because really it's about, you know, it's a really about the strength of Asian demand for gas. It's about um, the lack of Russian gas supplies going into the European market. It's about some really big geopolitical issues. Um, it just highlights that when you start getting high energy prices, and that's going to be one of the things, as Rob was talking about, you know, one of the things that could uh, come out of the energy transition and we as a house really expect it to be, it will have some very, very big political challenges. And, you know, some of those political challenges were seen in 2021 um, and probably will roll into 2022. I mean, we don't see very much in the way of a repricing downwards of European gas, you know, that's going to stay high. We think European carbon is going to stay high, and that means power prices are going to stay high as well. So, yes, you may have dealt with some of these aspects, you know, on a political basis, but getting people to live with something that isn't transitory, but almost a structural high price is going to be one of the challenges, I think, that we face and we see in 
during the transition and, and really for the next decade or so. And that's going to be a key challenge, I think. In terms of 2022, it's certainly going to play out a little bit more. I mean, it's very hard to see what will bring down gas prices quickly, apart from, let's say, a very mild Q1. And at the moment, you know, you just can't bank on, on the weather. And with the normal, normalized weather, you're already looking at summer gas prices in Europe on the curve uh, at about 60 euros a megawatt hour. And, you know, historically, you know, they've been 10. Right? Yeah. No, it's a long way. That's just going to kill European refining mm -hmm. if, it, if it stays mm -hmm. going. And, you know, I mean, I, I look at those sort of things and think like, oh, my goodness, what would happen in the US if you got prices like that? I mean, there would not be nearly the same level of acquiescence. Yeah, and we had have we did have prices um, this past February um, due to the uh, severe cold in, in the midcontinent, and Texas uh, was blacked out for a week. And here we are, ten months later, and um, there's a lot of finger pointing still going on, uh, whether it's renewables and you know trying to shift to more quote unquote dispatchable generation and blaming um, non dispatchable for the for the event. Um, and in fact, renewables will continue to grow when we look at, you know, how the generation queue has evolved over the past year and what it looks like for the next couple of years. Solar is still going to grow. Battery storage has come to the fore. But we're also seeing an increase in, in gas um, lining up, especially in Texas. But that's going to be needed elsewhere to keep existing gas online to be able to um, obviate the, the differences between the peaks and the troughs of, of wind and solar generation. We see that in California already, especially during dry years when the hydro is not there, and especially if, if nuclear goes away. And one of the outputs of the uh, Build Back Better bill, if it happens, would be a nuclear production tax credit that could save a nuclear plant in Michigan, Palisades, but also potentially Diablo Canyon, where there's a lot of um, uh, rallying around to keep that going because of its low carbon footprint. Another potential solve, solve for uh, nuclear generators elsewhere is who've been faced with mostly low prices up until now is a potential credit for generating or creating um, hydrogen uh, on their sites. And hydrogen has gotten a lot of um, eyeballs of late, Robin. Maybe you can talk us through what you're seeing and, and what, what the next couple of years is likely to see for hydrogen, both in North America and globally. Yeah, the, the, the great green hope. Um, you know, the fact is like, like you look at some of these refinery projects and everybody's apparently going to have green hydrogen at some point. Um, you know, it's, but if we do actually follow through in the transition, do we even need those refineries is the other question. But I mean, the bigger issue is that, you know, the costs of hydrogen are still way too high for a lot of applications. I mean, if you're, if you're able to electrify something, why, why would you burn hydrogen is the current question you ask right now without huge subsidies. And, um, you know, in, in terms of industrial processes, it's just, we have, we are so far down the path, down this, the level of, of where we need to be in terms of scaling manufacturing capacity that, you know, it's, it's just going to take a very long time to get there. I mean, it, you know, just in a typical European refinery would need something like, you know, hundred tons a, a day of hydrogen production just for normal operations. And that would require, you know, 180 to 200 megawatts of, uh, of electrolyzer capacity. And that, that represents about 20% of the output of one of the biggest electrolyzer factories in the world for a year. So, you know, just, just that sort of scale issue is the biggest problem, right? I mean, same thing if we tried to decarbonize the world's ammonia production, you know, it would take something like 40% of the, the power that is currently consumed in the US. So, you know, hydrogen is gonna go hand in hand with the rollout in, 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 in clean power generation, but you see all these competing, uh, you know, demand for clean power, right? We need to accommodate demand growth. We need to replace all the existing higher carbon uh, sources of energy at the same time. 
and uh, somehow get make enough space for these other applications is tremendous. No, I, and I think it, you, you know, you've highlighted, uh, you know, some of the big challenges which, which we're going to see. I think bringing it back to 2022, uh, you know, like what Peter was saying, you know, where we're going to see the transition play out most is in that decarbonization of the power sector, right? As Rob was pointing out, we're right at the beginning of H2 and H2 isn't even, you know, it's certainly not a story for 2022. And we'd probably argue it's not even a story for this decade. You know, this decade is maybe, is, is getting it to the place where it could in fact be commercialized. And you probably need a decade just to prepare it for its big rollout from 2030 onwards. But, it, but that, but, but, you know, bringing it back, I think 2022, you know, will play out a lot in the power sector. You look at, you know, where I would say the big push is going to be in Europe. Certainly it's, you know, what you can electrify, you know, um, do that because you can decarbonize, you know, uh, European power. And you're looking at, you know, something like maybe 30 gigawatts of new uh, new renewable capacity probably coming into the market. Uh, we saw that around that level we're expecting to see in 2021, and we're probably expecting to see similar levels in 2022. And Peter, I'm guessing you're going to see something similar in the North American power markets. Yeah, we're 2021 for the first time ever. Utility scale solar will be larger than uh, the growth in utility scale wind, um, even though there are some projects may have been delayed slightly due to labor and post-COVID constraints. Or, uh, we expect similar um, in 2022. Some of the projects due online this year pushed into that year, uh, but solar is going to be uh, the growth engine, uh, primarily driven by two factors. One is, you know, the favorable resource in, in Texas and continued uh, greening of the corporate fleet. So everybody who um, is trying to um, reduce their own uh, scope to, et cetera, emissions are trying to do so by decarbonizing their own electricity supply or their, uh, their suppliers. So that's easily done with um, with solar uh, offtake from uh, places like Texas and the Southwest. And then in the mid-continent and Southeast, utilities are switching, going from coal or gas or other fuels to solar and getting you know, significant returns for it. And it'll be interesting to see if that dynamic changes as interest rates rise. And this has been a search for yield for utilities and whether that um, continues or whether they have to uh, slow down a bit because of uh, cost inflation pressures. Yes, and cost inflation certainly a big, big thing that we've seen in 2021, particularly in the European space, where that combination of high, uh, high gas and high uh, carbon has driven, you know, very, very high power. And I think that's, um, you know, going to be a continuation of where we go for 2022. Um, we hope you've all enjoyed listening to this, and we thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to our podcast series. We look forward to meeting up with you in the new year and as well to the launch of our new Trading the Transition service, which will discuss what we view as the tradable side of the energy transition. Over the next few years, the disruption to the medium-term outlook on the oil and gas industry will be significant, and we intend to provide detailed analysis of the trading opportunities that will emerge from the intersection between government policy and corporate decisions as we deal with the climate crisis.